This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today are Matt Lee and Ted Lee, well-known Charlestonian cookbook authors, food writers, critics, men about town, and they've written a very different book. It's called Hot Box, Inside Catering, the Food World's Riskiest Business. Gentlemen, welcome back to the journal. Thank you, Walter. Thank you. It's great to be back. This is totally different from whatever you've done before. I know you've written about you know, food columns and what have you, but this is behind the scenes. Yes, we, we've been writing about food and travel and, and cultures, but really focused on the South, where we grew up since about 1999 or so. And we got to a point where it was time to start the next book. We Our most recent cookbook was the Lee Brothers Charleston Kitchen. We went all in on Charleston, you know, challenged things we, you know, thought we knew about Charleston, really explored it um, every creek and back alley. But what do you do next after a really thorough um, deep dive on the place you love most? And, and in cookbook form, there really wasn't anything I don't think that we needed to say or wanted to say more. And lucky for us, at just about that moment, 2011, we had an experience in New York City that just set off light bulbs for us and really propelled us into a new, this new direction. We were at the James Beard House, uh, which is kind of a temple of gastronomy. Every night there's a different special it's dinner. It's the village, right? Yes, yes that's right. Greenwich it's, village. And uh, it's a residential townhouse, but in it, they um, put on a fancy dinner for about 100 people almost every night with a different chef from around the country. Many chefs from Columbia and Charleston and throughout South Carolina have done this. It's an honor. Uh, a chef from Atlanta was there that night and had asked us to come observe and help um, do the hors d'oeuvres and I think a specialty cocktail. But the magic moment was when we met who else he had brought in. He had brought in a caterer, an executive chef at a catering firm in New York City to help him just with the logistics of producing food for 100 people. Um, that's not something that happens very regularly in a restaurant. You know, in a restaurant, you're serving a smattering of tables scattered over a night. It's basically a bell curve. Mm -hmm. um, for special events, you're serving uh, you know, a huge amount of people all simultaneously. That's the expectation, and he knew that. What we observed was a totally different way of cooking. This guy, Patrick Phelan, the executive chef at the catering firm, had brought in his two guys, Juan and Jorge Soto. And their techniques, their strategies, their language, everything about the way they did cooking was different from what we knew of restaurant cooking. Well, and if I can just add, um, when you think about the situation, these three caterers were walking into a kitchen that they had never cooked in. They'd never cooked with the chef Stephen Satterfield before, um, and it was a fa it's a famously cramped and difficult kitchen to work out of. Well, I was going to ask. I would have thought that the James Beard House would have had this fabulous, you know, TV style, state of the art. <laughs> yeah, but um, quite contrary, it's professional equipment that's been shoehorned into a, a, a townhouse. You know, it's a fairly grand townhouse, but it's still a residential property in and Greenwich in Village, and it's in roughly the basement. Oh, wow. um, and these three catering chefs walked in at like five o'clock in the afternoon for a six thirty serve out, and they just had this way of working that was completely anonymous in the sense that they weren't. They didn't have their names on their chef's coats. They didn't have crazy tattoos or piercings. No big toque. No big no, toque. They were, no, you know, blended into the wallpaper. They were special ops. They were simply there to get it done. They had never cooked these recipes before, and yet they understood intuitively how proteins and starches and vegetable cellulose and water react with heat in this it, this way that is more thorough than any of us truly or, understand. Did they know the menu recipe? before they got there? Or no. no. So, they, so they walked in blind, and, and they let Stephen tell them what was on the menu, and then he was, you know, he had done most of the pre-prep, and they, they did the job of searing all the proteins, and it was a very difficult menu. The thing was, there were two seared courses back-to-back. -back. One was quail, and the other was an oxtail crepinette, which is sort of like uh, oxtail, mince oxtail wrapped in... Uh, 
I think it's call fat. Right. So Stephen Satterfield is in Atlanta, Georgia. Miller Union is his restaurant. So he's channeling Southern flavors okay. and Southern ingredients. Um, so it's no accident that oxtail appeared in that menu. I think there was a saddle of rabbit as well. There were like eight courses. So they barely even talked to each other. They had hand signals. Um, you know, very few words sufficed for them to communicate with each other and to get the job done. And they were so resourceful in the sense that there were these two seared courses back to back, and they didn't have enough griddle space. And so what they did was they just grabbed a dry sheet pan, turned it upside down over two raging burners, and they just made a griddle out of you know, thin air, Very basically. resourceful, very, very improvisational. Resourceful. That sort of fundamental understanding of how food gets cooked and how you achieve color on protein and how you don't overcook things. And so it was a hugely successful event, and we went for beers with them afterwards, and we, you know, we just said, you guys knocked it out of the park, and Stephen was so happy with the results of the dinner. He's since won a James Beard Award, which is probably that dinner was part of it. And they said... Um, you got to understand, that was only 75, 80 people. We don't start sweating until it's 750 or 800. And these like, are the Soto brothers? Yeah. Yeah. Juan and, and Jorge Soto. And, and then they've you know, done 10,000 parties um, between the two of them. And you know, that night, a whole new world opened up. We realized there's this entire cooking subculture hiding in plain sight throughout the nation of professional caterers who take food on the road. They are totally accustomed to showing up at 5 p.m. in a strange location with a team full of mercenaries, some of whom they don't know, and having to invent a way to cook food for a heroic number of people, 1,500, you know, 3,600 people, without electricity often, without running water. I mean, these are not professional kitchens. It might be a tent in a grassy field. I think somewhere you mentioned in New York, you can't take a butane burner. Propane is propane and is, butane is, are, are forbidden in New York City. So all you're dealing with is sterno cans. That's correct. They have so, you know, the world opened up to us. We decided let's explore this. We didn't realize it was a book at the time, but we did begin to sort of do research on the history of catering and, and Meals on Wheels and how do you, you know, do this. And it, it turns out that in the 1970s, an early leading edge of modern caterers figured out how to hack. The hot box, that's the name of the title of the book. The hot box is a rolling transfer cabinet that was designed just to simply move sheet pans of food, like 32 sheet pans of food, through a large commercial kitchen. They took that and figured out a way to adapt it so that it's not only the way to get the food to the site, but also once they empty it and fill it with those flaming cans of Sterno, it's an oven. It's a warming oven. It's a warming oven that you can create zones in so that if you the demand is 530 portions of that t beef tenderloin medium well and 762 medium rare and such and such, you can do that. It's really flexible. It's really scalable. It's really efficient and cheap to operate. Um, you can handle almost any situation, but you have to have the touch and the experience. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, what you're describing, and I read that in the, in the book, is you don't have a meat thermometer on every shelf. There are no, no thermometers. It's, <laughs> it's strictly it's, touch. And there's no, um, there's no dials. There's no way to control the heat in it. It's just the number of sternos you put and where you put them. And how far open the door is. It's, you know, it's an amazing... It's, you know what it's, it's like? It's like flying a hot air balloon. It's that level of control. There is no steering wheel. There is no gear shift. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of on off. And you just kind of have to nurture that thing into the right place. And there's no substitute for experience. And, and so... The, and what's at stake is the 1500 beef tenderloins that have to go out into the dining room in 30 minutes. <laughs> okay. So you found out about the hot box that night, and that began your exploration, your research mm -hmm. into commercial catering in New York City. Well, yes. Uh, yes, and we actually were put to work right away. Patrick Phelan, that executive chef, um, he hired us. He was gratified by our interest in in the processes of catering and, and our fascination. And he was like, well, you know, we always need hands in catering, and we I will hire you, but you got to work. You can't be a fly on the wall. And so we went to work as first as uh, $10 an hour prep chefs in the 
um, you know, prep kitchen, which, which is where most of the sort of chopping, peeling, and uh, planning work goes on. Uh, All right. So a catering firm, they have a home kitchen somewhere. Yes, definitely. They have typically have a centralized kitchen. Um, where all the fundamentals and cooking, chopping happens, and all the food gets prepped to take to the site. And then there's another layer of cooking that happens on the site. Um, but you can imagine at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when it's time to load out three, four, maybe five different parties into trucks to make their way to the various venues where the parties are happening in the city. It's a it pretty, gets pretty hectic. Are, are you call that a fiesta. So yes. yes, the shift is the prep shift, and then there's the fiesta shift, which is the party shift. And those are two different cultures within catering. The other thing, the part of the reason New York was a perfect laboratory and window into this um, world, which exists worldwide, I mean, you know, catering happens in, on every continent, is that in New York City, the stakes are so much higher. And for a lot of reasons, including the no propane allowed, the conditions are so much more challenging. Simply getting your employees to work is a huge challenge. Remember, it, the last stages of planning a party at you know, 5 p.m., that's rush hour. <laughs> and so if you're trying to you know, get resources to the Park Avenue Armory at 5 p.m. to prepare for a party um, for 1,200 people, it can be challenging. I just keep thinking about the food preparation, and, and somewhere in here you talk about the danger zone. Yes. Uh, yes. Food has to, you either have to keep it, what, below 40 degrees? Yeah, or, it's like or or below, above 140. Below 40 or above 140. And um, um, otherwise bacteria grows. <laughs> and so the leftovers that give people food poisoning because they've been left out too much, you know, that's what you're trying to avoid. And... Um, it's just one of the many hazards. There's, um, you know, logistical hazards like um, food safety. Um, there is are the social hazards of the fact that it's a wedding, and so everyone's anxiety levels are high. I mean, uh, that's the fun thing about working in special event catering. Every event is a special event, so there's usually something at stake. Whether it's the emotions of the bride, it's a launch of a movie. Or it's a launch of a product. It it's might a be a nonprofit oh, ga annual gala. gala, so the kind of financial stakes are there, and you got to please all the donors, and and it's just pregnant with you know dramatic potential. We were just we knew that there was a book in this because we knew that when you bring that kind of um, raised emotions and and food challenges to the table, there has to be stories. We also knew that we couldn't bring those stories back unless we actually lived it. And mm -hmm. so for about three or four years, we worked um, for Patrick's firm. We did research. We interviewed the principals in the business, mostly in New York, but, um, but also Duval events in Charleston. Um, we did a close study on. And, um, and what, what we came away with, I think, is just a profound appreciation for the amount of labor and talent and skill that it takes to pull off these events, um, whether it's, you know, whether it's the executive chef or these uh, chefs running these hot boxes and turning out these proteins. And you can't, you know, there's, you're, as one caterer told us, one of the um, original founders of a, a firm in, in New York said, you're only as good as your last souffle. All right, gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Matt Lee and Ted Lee about their latest book, Hotbox, which deals with the catering industry and its development and what caterers are facing today. All right, and one thing I think we need to make straight for our, our listeners, and that is you're talking about something that is brought in off-site. This, this is not having an event at... A hotel or that's a country correct. club that's or a using craft, yeah, that, that are the, using their own, yeah, right. The term for this kind of catering is called off-premise catering, and it's fairly new. In studying the um, the history of this, um, certainly in the New York area, if in the '40s, '50s, if you had a grand event, um, a wedding, a big birthday, you would do it at a private club or a hotel. 
at their at their banquet facility, right? Mm-hmm. Where the chef is cooking out of his or her comfort zone yeah. and out of his or her pantry. It makes yeah. sense. Why would you ever attempt to to cook a dinner in a field or in a museum, a drafty museum? But in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a culture of entertainment that arose that was all about loosening parties up and sort of you know, you could have a party in your in your home if it was grand enough, or you could rent out the museum, which was never designed to be an event venue, but is a beautifully grand space, and you can make a really special event happen there. So, or p- people read about that in the papers. You know, somebody had an event at the Museum of Modern mm-hmm. Art. Right uh, here in Columbia, it was at the Columbia Museum of Art. It actually, you have a starting date when the, the first one of those was held in New York. In mm-hmm. the, at That's an right, in the Temple of Dendur. And um, yeah, it, it, it's commonplace now, but it wasn't. And that's, wasn't that's back in the 70s. This was early 1970s, about 1971. And um, we can even attribute it to a few specific caterers, really forward-thinking people like Donald Bruce White, who brought a level of theatricality. They were really craving something different. They felt that these uh, banquet halls and clubhouses and, you know, parish, you know, parish halls were just a little bit stultifying. And these events were becoming too routine and too predictable, and, and the food in them was too overcooked and bland. And so... They just figured out ways. What was so interesting, Walter, though, is that when we began to research who these people were, we found commonalities. It turns out that so many of them, uh, almost to, to the individual, had military backgrounds and theatrical backgrounds. So, A lot of USO tour uh, players. and um, Which totally makes sense, A lot sense, of army right? brats. Because there is this theatricality of putting on a special event and catering a special event, but there's also the discipline that you need to bring to bear. Um, the, organization, the organization, the planning. I mean, it's sort of like a mash unit. You, you know, it's a, you, you roll in all the facilities, the kitchen, all that stuff. You do the gala, and then you have to be out of there by midnight. You have to have it swept clean by midnight. <laughs> <laughs> all right, now, caterers started out doing... Food. In fact, the the, the, mention, the firms that you mentioned started out doing something in people's homes for mm-hmm. dinners of 24 sure. or yeah. what have you, and then all of a sudden it just blossomed. Right, and and the museums, cultural institutions, libraries, museums started realizing that there was money to be made in renting their space, these beautiful spaces out for there was a new for profit events. center. But the thing is, those buildings those those architectural spaces were not designed to be kitchens there's no staging so kitchen there's, there's no, no staging kitchen for 220 volt electricity for a, an electric oven or or convection oven or anything like that and there still aren't so right. so that they're still cooking over stern when, when you're when you're planning menus you've got there's some things that literally can't be done Yes. That's right. And, you know, like, once we drilled down, it's fascinating the issue of food design and catering because from the very first moment that you plan what food you're going to serve at that wedding or that gala, um, you're determining success or failure. And mm-hmm. so the successful catering chef has in mind all of the constraints of what it takes to serve food in food inappropriate spaces. And you will find that certain things turn up time and time again. Nowadays, short rib any kind of cut of meat that that holds well and that improves with time. You know, those kind of braised meats that are better the next day. So, Oxtail mm-hmm. it would be one, yeah. although that's too expensive for a lot of catering. Lamb shank, beef short rib, barbecue, things um, that can hold and sort of develop the longer they are, do. You're talking about the chef now, but one of the tensions in the book is between the sales and marketing end mm-hmm. of the firm yes. and the people have to produce it. Sure. And, you know, you've got bridezillas out there who decide right. that they want something. And I'm gathering it's getting harder and harder to say no when people are having to... We have a whole weddings chapter in the book. But yeah, and a sales chapter and a design chapter and an allergies chapter. I mean, you're mapping out on a special night basically all of the nation's anxieties and hang-ups and um, foibles and laying bare the national psyche, basically. And it's really fun to explore. But um, nowadays, what couples, especially to take the weddings part of it, are really wanting to do with their wedding is to tell 
a story about themselves in the food that they plan, the way they design the wedding that's never been told. It's not simply a dream wedding. It's like the story of how they met in Naples and told through a soup, you know, and it's, this very granular, um, it very can, specific it stuff. It can become really, really Baroque, but that, you know, that stems from that history of loosening the party from the banquet hall and, you know, you deciding where do you want your function to be, the personalization of the special event, whatever it is taken to its extreme, you know, if you sit down with a happy couple and say, you know, what story do you want to tell through your party? It's yours to, it's yours to do. It's, it's, that's a different thing than setting a ham down at one end of the table, a turkey at the other, and some plates down, and, and, and doing a wedding like, like we've heard that specific thing, the, the ham at one end of the table, the turkey at the other, was how Josephine Humphreys, the author, described her wedding in Charleston in the 60s, late 60s. Um, you know, it's very simple, very classy, <laughs> but that's a, a, a different—we're in a different time now. There's Instagram, and all these brides and grooms want to be the most original ever. You know, I went through that wedding chapter with—they were, you know, this meant something to me, and I thought, well— Maybe they should have a program for the guests so they understand why <laughs> they've got this weird menu. Right. Well, what's so interesting is that the calling card of the company we worked for was that customization. So when they sat down with the client, it wasn't, here's menu A, B, C, or D. It was, take your pick. What, what story do you want to tell? Things as get long really as you broke. have the money. I mean, this is, I mean, catering ultimately is a luxury product, right? Um, you know, you can't do it on a shoestring, certainly not in New York City, where kind of the average event is about $1,000 per person when you include food and decor and space rental and all that. So these people are kind of, you know, swinging for the bleachers. And the sales function is to enable that. It's for them to say, yes, I'm thrilled to do this nine months from now, and I'm going to sign on the dotted line and put down a deposit now. Right. Um, and sales conspires. Sales is never going to try to put the kibosh on anything, right? They're not going to try to— asparagus in winter, they're going to say they're yes. They're going to say yes, because they want to make But the now deal. imagine and the poor chef in the kitchen who has to bring that fantasy to life and into reality. It might be a struggle to find asparagus that you'd be proud enough to serve in January. Um, but what's what's funny so is some just heroic battles ensue between sales and the kitchen. You know, we worked some hilarious weddings um, where there was one of those baroque ones where there was far too much complication going in the food into the food. Certainly, you know, the emotions of a wedding are such that you can't really focus on the details of like what the story that the tuna tartare is telling about the bride and the groom. I mean, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> there were way too many. Uh, appetizers. There was way too much food for the site. We were all cramped in. We barely get this food out, and it was beautiful. Um, but the bride and groom had actually ordered special meals. Like, they were, they were being served a meal that was completely different from the other 350 people, and it was a grilled chicken breast with nothing on it. <laughs> and it, it, isn't that crazy? I mean, when you think about it. So the bride and the groom who were celebrating are eating a different meal from their 350 guests. It was so crazy. Well, let's talk about your hands-on experiences. You, you both had some interesting experiences learning about mm -hmm. being behind the curtain. That's what you talk about. That's the phrase right. you use. Well, you know, the interesting hallmark of catering chefs and the people who are employed in it, as we discovered firsthand, is there's a personality difference with restaurant kitchens. And it's because of that prerogative that you be invisible. You know, you're behind a curtain. Your name is not on the marquee. If you're the executive chef, um, the bride and groom might not ever know your name. And it's designed like that because it's not your night, it's their night. And it works a lot of different ways. You may not want your name on the marquee if the conditions backstage are so risky that the odds of overcooked salmon. fish, salmon, are very high. You know, the odds of um, things going wrong are quite high compared to restaurant world where you're cooking in your comfort zone. I mean, we did a passable job behind the scenes, but there were some... Uh, situations where, for example, I r rolled a cart of, let's say, ice cream parfaits. It was some kind of parfait a in parfait. a tall glass. Um, and 
rolled them over the inevitable um, wires, speaker wires and electrical wires that are backstage at any event. And that thing tipped over and all of the pudding sloughed over and put a smear, a smudge on the edge of the glass. It wasn't a total catastrophe. Um, it didn't go over all the way, but um, it was enough that those you know, 300 parfaits were were a waste. You know, they had to be thrown away. They were not servable. Fortunately, it I was felt a buffet, terrible. But fortunately, you know. it was a buffet at you know the Javits Convention Center, um, and there were you know 10 other desserts on the menu for the NBA brunch or whatever it was, All Stars brunch. But um, well, what's what's it like peeling 1,800 eggs? Oh gosh! I mean, you can. What, what there's if you a, did? What if yeah, you did that, that was. I was on that on on that team. We were doing 1,600 deviled eggs for a, a party for a cruise line, and you know we were hand peeling all the eggs by hand, and you know you can practically make your fingers bleed doing that, and you you kind of lose track of time, and it's just it's just excruciating work. And what was funny in that is that we were. Our whole assembly line was, you know, peeling the eggs, cutting them, you know, removing the yolks, and then whipping them and with to make the filling. And this other team of chefs came in and said, "Oh, visiting from the cruise." Visiting ship. from the cruise line came in and said, "You didn't want to buy the bucket of already peeled hard-boiled eggs because you can buy a product, that's five-gallon pail of already peeled, peeled eggs, hard-boiled like eggs, thirty-two dollars." Um, he's got a line of three. Uh, chefs. chefs working to peel those eggs. Is it cheaper to peel the eggs yourself, or is it cheaper to buy the bucket? Or what about taste and quality? I mean, well, that's that the factors thing. in, of course. That factors in absolutely, and that was the reason why you know our executive chef had made the decision that we're going to peel the eggs. You know, there's so many moments in so catering many. where you have to measure compromise. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, whether it's money or qualitative issues or time. Time is a character in catering, and time is tortured. It, at time, like times we'd be, you'd be asked to fill three quart containers of minced chives. That might take three or four hours to complete. Time might evaporate in there. You might fall into a beautiful trance, and then the buzzer on the oven rings, and you look up from your work and realize that three hours just went by in a minute. And then other times, um, when you're trying to, you know, plate up something under time pressure before the guests arrive, you know, th it just might creep by, and ten minutes might feel like an eternity. So, you know, we were we were in a totally different world. Nothing we had experienced in our home kitchens compared. And certainly nothing we had observed in restaurant kitchens either. And um, we found few instances of restaurant chefs becoming successful in catering. There were a few, and it was really interesting to hear them talk about the differences between restaurant culture and catering culture. Well, I'm thinking about a catering event in South Carolina in the 1960s, and I was not present, but the wife of a good friend was at the time uh, working for the state newspaper, and she covered the event. And it was in Charleston. And she said, I didn't believe this. They set the table about 1030 in the morning, and on it were bowls of potato salad, chicken salad, and egg salad. And they didn't eat until 1230. And she said, I'm sorry. I'm a good Southern girl. She was from Jackson, Mississippi. She said, I wouldn't have touched anything Any of that. on the buffet. Right. Well, everybody ate it, and they, they survived. But, I mean, that's one of those. Yeah. This, it wasn't sitting in ice. It was just right. sitting. Just sitting out in out the sun, there. baking. You it's know, a people, somewhat self-regulating system because in a restaurant, think about it. If something goes wrong, you might lose a table of customers, um, and you can still remedy that with a free bottle of wine or, or picking up their tab. In catering, if you do something wrong with a potato salad, you might take down a hundred people, <laughs> and you're out of business. I mean, right. and that's there are the hard reason. limits to what you can do in catering. You think about what the stakes are. These chefs have such an intuitive sense of what is safe and what is not safe, and it's 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 ingrained in them by having done this. And for the firms that operate in the New York market, it's so competitive. You don't have a chance to slip up. Nobody has a chance to poison 100 people because they'd be out of business the next day. You could have 
you know, done a million glittering events perfectly um, in the past, but as soon as the soup is too salty or the dance floor is warped or, you know, you will hear about it the next morning and all you can do is apologize. What about the disaster dinner that you described where they had the fish under glass as the appetizer? Oh, Oh, right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And when people lifted the the dome right. they the, got a fish market smell <laughs> and yeah it was and and then the beef was, was co- something was coated in in a dried english pea crust and it t- pea powder and it, it, and it tasted, tasted like, like a swamp <laughs> i mean it was just it, there's it, ways in there which are the ways in which and the quest for novelty can be pushed so far that the you jump the shark that it becomes ridiculous and that's exactly the the kind of thing where it was at the whitney museum and the caterer was clearly swinging for the bleachers and trying to make this food that was that looks so beautiful and whatever but was missing that moment well, of like to, you have caterer. to eat it has to um, be delicious right? well it has to be delicious yeah. well um, that caterer didn't get hired for the next the next year's gala and that caterer might be able to rehabilitate his or her her reputation but it would take time for that to well that's one of the things that I found interesting is that the firms that say have, the Armory Show, mm-hmm. or the Met Annual Gala, or the whatever, mm-hmm. is repeat yes, business. that's right. That is incredible money. That you've got to know that, like uh, one of those galas, the budget is million plus, and it comes around every year. And so that's a gravy train if you sustain it. But think about the tensions that develop over that relationship entering year seven, where in the chef's mind. You have to make it more dazzling than last year and the year before and the year before that. You can't repeat your greatest hits because everyone will remember. They're mostly the same donors, the same audience, the same guests. And so every year ups the ante. Has to be more dazzling than last year. Can't be worse, right? And these, I mean, this. And so these, the stress level goes higher and higher and higher. <laughs> and this is, we've talked to a lot of caterers in South Carolina, and they, they experience the same thing. I mean, they're, they're, the annual they're usually doing the is, annual event, and every year has to be different and better than the one that came before. And on year 12 or 20, how, what is that? <laughs> well, I mean, part of it has to do with the venue and what you can do with sure. presentation and, yeah. and decorations. You can see why there's that impulse toward customizing and personalizing. You know, presentation and menus have gotten so diverse. When it comes to hors d'oeuvres, I guess I'm still old-fashioned enough. If you're serving people alcohol, mm-hmm. you need those pimento cheese sandwiches, the shrimp salad sandwiches, the egg salad sandwiches. Some people would bring in the pineapple and cheese, cream that's more yeah. ladies' yeah. afternoon. You've yeah. got to give them something substantial. Substantial, right. Particularly if, you're if, you, if, you're, if it's an event at some places, they are fundraisers, they're serving top-of-the-line liquor and mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have any food. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you need some food for sure. Um, and, and it has to be wieldable. I mean, think about the design constraints. Like, you want especially food that does not require knife and fork toward the beginning of the meal, right? right. That's the other thing. Right. Um, and it's interesting on the subject of those first bites, um, we talked to a salesman who was at the firm that we worked for, and he said he'd worked in, this, in the same firm for 10 years as a salesman, and he said he'd never done a wedding that did not have pigs and blankets, regardless of the budget. No matter how expensive. Whether it was a million-dollar wedding, $100,000 wedding, <laughs> people love pigs and blankets. Everyone wants a pig and a blanket. There yeah. are pendulum swings, and it kind of coincides with swings in the economy, um, how radical, customized it gets. And then the pendulum will swing back, and um, certain catering firms will force their customers to reconsider wild customization and instead offer up, you know, this is what we do best menu A, B, C, D, and E, um, because that Which puts makes... the entire party on safer ground. Um, it's so much less risky if the catering firm knows, loves, and has done before many times that dish. Um, the odds of success are going to be much greater. And that's advice that we give to people who say, well, what would you say You know, if I was doing a catered party? What, 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 what advice would you give me? And I would say, um, if you like the caterer's food, trust the caterer, because mm-hmm. they know what they do well. Put and them in their comfort zone. And you don't want to put them in, in, in a zone where they're not comfortable. Well, I think one of the things down here that probably is not 
crew in New York is somebody may still have a big party, but they want to use their own china. Mm -hmm. Grandma's linens. Grandma's linens. (laughs) There are caterers I know that will do that. Mm -hmm. But um, we have a whole chapter on party rentals. And because yeah. you know, renting all the plateware, the glassware, the all that kind of thing, and it's it's funny because people they don't have s- attics in New York City. You know, they're <laughs> living in apartments, and so the storage issue is primary, and bringing in stuff is necessary. But there's this fog of war that happens in the moments after the dessert hits the table and when people start packing and getting ready to leave and cleaning and assigning which thing goes in which truck and if grandma's linens are there they may end up in Teterboro New Jersey (laughs) at the warehouse and what do you do then they have a code for that which is NOG not our goods it's when you know the samovar comes back and they have no idea where this came from (laughs) or the grandma's linens you know they try to say rent your stuff don't use grandmas. I mean, one lesson we learned about entertaining and putting on, you know, big events uh, from the food standpoint, and uh, Ted actually learned this on site at Diana Ross's house, is that comfort food kills. It's what people want. And whether it's uh, pasta bolognese or um, macaroni and cheese, fried, um, fried chicken. chicken, beef tenderloin, you really can't go wrong <laughs> with those things. They're tried and true, and um, they you know, might not have razzmatazz, but they do dazzle, and, and they allow for the party to breathe and for your guests to have fun and to focus on the things that truly matter. Well, gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Matt Lee and Ted Lee about catering, and it's based upon their latest book, Hotbox. One of the things that I have noticed, and this is just handling a dinner for a small private group, somebody will say, well, I've got, I can't eat this, <laughs> and I can't uh, eat allergies, preferences, and intolerances. And intolerances. Those are, if you ask any caterer, what's changed most in the last 10 years in your business, they'll say that allergies, preferences, and intolerances. And And people now feel emboldened when the first invitation arrives to proclaim them. And the invitation might ask, you know, do you call out anything? A caterer doesn't mind dealing with those things as long as they know in advance. Because remember, they've left their comfort zone at the prep kitchen. They're now on site. If you introduce a new idea, like, you know, please give me something that meets my criteria A, B, and C, they might be able to help you out, but they might not. Um, It's partly the fault of caterers that they've done such a good job at um, customizing and responding to these kinds of um, ad hoc needs that they give the impression that it's a restaurant. And in terms of offsite catering, it it ain't a restaurant. There's no running water. There's no electricity. And so... um, you get in these positions. Nowadays, the, the you know, prime strategy is to always bring a sheet pan of simply dry grilled uh, vegetables um, to try to either bulk up a salad where you've removed the croutons and the protein or to just, you know, sort of garnish a pasta, a plain pasta or something. Um, there's ways to get through. Um, but it, at a very big event, you have a whole separate cooking line, almost a separate kitchen that's dealing with special special needs um, food requests. There are just so many cultural changes, and the caterer definitely wants to make everyone at the party happy, and if they know in advance what those intolerances are, they can pr- provide for them. Um, well, and many are getting very strategic about it and making dishes that are soy-free, gluten-free, um, you know, everything free. Nut but, free. But also, yes, nut free. That's a key one, but also taste delicious. Um, and that's that's a cool challenge of food design for the executive chef. Well, I guess just in helping plan this dinner that I was involved with, a couple of people said things. I'm sorry. I think they were just wanting to be chic. Right. <laughs> well, that there's so many, so many, every chef can tell you uh, a story of the time they were you know, catering to 
um, a specific a allergy. Specific allergy. The gluten-free person who was militantly gluten-free until the chocolate cake arrived, and then she <laughs> wanted a second piece. You know, so it's 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 there's a lot of those too, and it, I don't know how do you solve for that kind of thing. You well, just can't. One know. thing we discovered is a lot of events have a silent vegetarian option, meaning that um, the chef has prepared a certain proportion of meals that are vegetarian. Um, and often extremely delicious, but they're only available on request. So if someone does speak up, you know, they receive that option, um, a sort of negative option marketing way of dealing with the situation. Um, the problem can develop where that vegetarian, silent vegetarian option is so attractive that people around that same table are like, oh, take away my salmon. I want that. Yeah, it becomes the viral. vegetarian lasagna you know, and it goes <laughs> viral and then the kitchen has a real problem. <laughs> It has to be delicious, but not too attractive. Well, Matt, what was your most interesting experience behind the curtain? Oh, gosh. I'd say the most interesting experience, and we dedicate a chapter to it nearly, is behind the curtain, it was just me and Patrick and uh, Juan Soto. And we were catering a trustee's dinner for 14 people at the Frick Museum. And so these were billionaires. Uh, and the entire night, we never saw them. And I did screw up behind the curtain. We were in a drafty vestibule off the, the main lobby where the um, wheelchairs are stored. And we had made it into a kitchen. And it was a fairly simple menu. But I had scorched the Parmesan cream sauce. And the truck driver had to go back to headquarters to get and fortunately, had enough time to get two more quarts of and what's ingredients. The lingo? You have a, a rerun. A re That's a rerun, and it, everyone in catering nationwide knows a rerun because it always happens. There's so many things to check off on your list. So many ingredients brought to bear, um, especially at the bigger parties, that it's inevitable. But in any case, we survived, and we got through it. And um, but he did something with the sauce that you that shocked you. There were a number of things he did with uh, the chef did with the sauce that shocked me. Um, one of them was that he just dumped in so much cheese that it was basically liquid cheese, and it was like no one's going to complain. Everyone loves liquid cheese, even billionaires. <laughs> um, and then another thing is um, he garnished it with truffle oil, which um, is kind of an abomination in in the upper echelons of restaurant culture. And he'd probably never do that today, but it was. You know, commonplace. But then. also, while you were trying to repair the sauce, you all were sticking your finger in. Oh to yeah, taste we it. were using. <laughs> we were not using rubber gloves. It was not strictly sanitary. sanitary. And in the heat of battle, in the heat of the moment, we did not have time to use tasting spoons. We were using our fingertips, and, and that's a little. It's a little risque, but you have to understand, no matter who you are, you have tasted someone's fingertip a thousand times and lived to tell the tale. If you dine out, whether it's a restaurant or um, in catering or in home kitchens, like, you just cannot be a germaphobe. Well, I... Are you a germaphobe? Absolutely not. Okay. I mean, I, I think people are too particular these days. I mean, our kids grew up with the, with the five-second rule. If it dropped right. on the floor... Our grandfather had a saying, you eat a peck of dirt before you die. Yeah. So, Ted, what about you? I, for me, I think... Um, it was working the Park Avenue Armory Gala three years running because I was really able to see this is a, a, a party for it started as the first year was 385. But based on the, the success of that year, it doubled in size the next year. And then I think by the third year I worked it, it was 900 people and the theatricality of it. It was a production. You know, there were smoke machines. It was pitch black. There were spotlights. You know, the diners couldn't see practically. Well, but was they that had the one with the umbilical cord? Yes, yes, yes. That was the, it was called In the Void was the title of the party. Um, it involved Very 120 sexual. dancers from the Alvin Ailey Institute flooding the floor with a fog, with a layer of fog coming in, you know, among the diners. Um, the desserts were delivered by waiter by servers on city bikes. I mean, it was just very high concept. It was it was like Cirque du Soleil meets meets uh, Wednesday night dinner. Um, any any accident? Um, there were there were accidents, but they were all behind the pipe and drape. They were all in where we were in the kitchen. Um, there were hot plates, and a lot of them got dropped. Um, but Scalding fortunately, on the 
there was just a lot of smoke and mirrors that we were concerned because the crowd is all in tuxedos and they're not young people that somebody was going to have a heart attack. I mean, just by virtue of the stimulation <laughs> and the numbers, you know, it's, it's, it's just crazy. But um, New York is more durable than you expect, Teddy. But it, it, it brought a new um, notion of d- dinner theater, that whole idea that like dinner, making dinner more than... Well, are the special effects, you know, overshadowing the food? I mean... Yeah, I mean, there's a point at which it's just, uh, you know, how jaded and bored um, are these billionaires in New York, you know, that they need to be dazzled so much and the novelty factor has to be that high. I'm not that cynical. I, I feel like there's such artistry and originality and creativity brought to bear and putting together the th- that the theatrics and the food design um, that we saw, you know, that, that striving for novelty um, is really an accomplishment. And and when someone says, you know, what do you want to serve for Thanksgiving dinner, I kind of have stage fright. And it's like, oh, gosh, I go back to my old standbys, right? That's my natural instinct. But what if your job was to be original every night? I just have so much admiration for those chefs who are able to conjure up new visions and slightly modified or transmuted ways to do dinner. Well, you mentioned that restaurant chefs don't often move over into the catering world. Right. How are these catering chefs trained? Trial by fire. Trial by fire um, is a lot of They filter it. up. And, um, and so some firms do borrow from restaurant culture, and they'll try to drag in a promising uh, chef. And Patrick Phelan is one of those who, um, who really has the chops for restaurant. And he ended up a giveaway one part of the book because um, we follow him throughout his career, the arc of his career, and he is successfully escapes New York City and and the hustle of, you know, 80-hour-a-week executive chef catering and happily with his wife and a partner opened up their dream restaurant for the first time in Richmond, Virginia, Long Oven. Mm-hmm. But in general, restaurant-inclined people cycle through catering with a little bit of dissatisfaction, but I think they pick up a lot of lessons Um, along the way. What's really cool is nowadays restaurant chefs are being called into situations like festivals and pop-ups and off-site events in other cities that are not their home where they're put in the position of of catering simultaneous service for large quantities of people. So I think there's a newfound appreciation among restaurant chefs for the techniques and skills that are required to do off-site event catering. Well, there was an article that I think it was it's either in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times about restaurant chefs or when they're looking for staff, look for somebody who's been trained in House of Pancakes. Yes, that was Priya Krishna's article in the New York Times about, you know, we we don't what think of chain, chain restaurants, restaurants yeah. as being um, haute cuisine, but they actually train you very well to go into a really fine dining restaurant and and be a great employee. Well, it seems like it'd be great training ground for a caterer, too, because they're in those chain restaurants you're expected to do sure. volume. And you're, you just, it's organization and planning. And discipline. It's that kind of military mindset. Well, that's what was interesting. We started off and you said the earliest successful caterers in New York had a military background, either yep. as literally serving or being part of a military family and the organization and then the showmanship. Mm-hmm. And also the rootlessness, the idea that, you know, you don't need a home base, you know, that you may be transferred at any moment to a arena that's unfamiliar to you, and yet you still have to perform at the standards that you set for yourself. You do have a chapter on weddings. Any of our listeners out there are planning a wedding, you've got, you've got some suggestions, Matt. Why don't you read? Serve what you like to eat. <laughs> if you're requesting a special meal... Maybe everyone should be eating the special meal. Then the more items you put on your buffet and the more courses there are, the less likely anyone will remember any of it the following morning. Let deliciousness be the most memorable thing about the food. The more you force what you serve to tell a complicated story about you, the more likely your guests will put down their fork and disengage. 
Either the bride or groom should take a quick moment, if at all possible, to step behind the pipe and drape to offer a smile and a thumbs up to the kitchen staff. Connecting on some level with the people making your wedding happen will make it memorable for everyone. Okay. All right. Ted, any of those you would add? Oh, when selecting the food for your wedding, think first about seasonality in the context of the venue you've chosen. Is there any likelihood of it being infernally hot and humid, or alternately frigid? Make certain the food you choose envisions the most extreme conditions for the time and place. Hey, a raw bar in December. (laughs) That's fine, but don't do August. (laughs) Those those kinds of things were legion. I, you know, uh, the raw bar in August that I I had to work was really not a happy event. All right, fellas, I hate it. Alfred's giving me the, the wind-up sign. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off today? And, Ted, I'll start with you. What I hope readers take away is that catering isn't rubber chicken, and also that whoever the caterer is, whatever the style of party is, they want you to be happy. And making a little connection with them might make all the difference. If you like what you're eating, tell the server. This is really delicious. Okay, Matt? I guess what I'd say is don't do what they do in New York. Don't try to swing for the bleachers. Sure, bring in some personal touches, but ultimately the food you serve at a special event should be comforting and simple and shouldn't distract from the true meaning of the event. Okay. Well, Matt Lee and Ted Lee, longtime friends of the Journal, you've got this wonderful new book, Hotbox. Thanks for being with us today on the Journal. Thanks for having us, Walter. Thank you, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was fun having Matt Lee and Ted Lee back on the show. Many years ago, at the turn of the century, when we first started the journal, these fellows were boiling peanuts in their small apartment in New York City, taking Southern and South Carolina cooking to the Big Apple. Many books later, they have now produced Hot Box, Inside Catering, The Food World's Riskiest Business. It's a fascinating read because not only is it history, it talks about their experiences in becoming at least apprenticed catering chefs. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.